0: Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo-Virgil. All right, guys, welcome back to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo-Virgil, and I'm super excited for our guest today. Our guest is Kent Ritter. Now, Kent is a former management consultant, corporate executive, and startup owner. After successfully exiting his first company, Kent turned his focus to real estate. Now, Kent is the CEO of Hudson Investing, a multifamily investment firm, which helps busy professionals scale and diversify their real estate portfolio with cash-flowing, wealth-building assets. Kent, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Yannick. Thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. So, give us a little bit about your backstory and how do you get to where you are today uh, sure you know grew up in the midwest in indianapolis
1: it's where i live now where we focus a lot of our investing went to college studied finance and econ and came out of school in 07 kind of right ahead of the uh great depression or the uh great recession so went into management consulting, ended up through that time helping a lot of businesses figure out how to solve problems that they couldn't solve themselves, right? That's essentially what we did. Flew all over the country doing that. So I did that for about 12 years through some pretty interesting times and learned a ton. You start seeing uniform trends around like what works, what doesn't work, right? For businesses, what makes them successful, what makes others fail. Started a management consulting business in 2010 with several partners sold it at the end of 2015, that's what really kicked off my real estate career. I took capital from that and started investing in my own real estate deals. Trying to find my way, I was doing fix and flips, buying houses on contract and building out a note portfolio, uh, build up a single family and duplex rental portfolio. But none of those things really fit for me. None of them really fit my goals. And in that time, I had gotten into like crowdfunding and was investing in deals through that. I started making entries with deal sponsors, learning about syndication, started investing passively in other people's syndication, uh, which is learning about multifamily and saying like, I think this is the path to go down. This is scalable. It's got better tax treatment. And it's something that that I think really there's going to be a long-term, a long-term need for and good returns. So really start focusing on multifamily. In 2019, After doing a bunch of deals on my own and passively investing with a lot of other people, decided to form Hudson Investing to focus on doing our own deals and bringing our own investors into those deals to be able to pull our money together and buy bigger, better assets than than we could on our own, right? So really, 2019 was that shift to start bringing in other investors, doing bigger deals. And then from then, we've really been uh, rocking and rolling and we've built up a portfolio of about 994 units at this point and continuing to grow.
0: What a great story. So let's take it back to your company days when you successfully exited the company. What were the biggest lessons that you've learned from exiting that company prior to getting into real estate? Yeah, that's a really good question. I
1: mean, it was a like a true startup story, right? It was Five guys around a kitchen table at the start. You know, we were taking conference calls from the guy's guest bedroom, you know, and then we grew that over about a five and a half year period to 95 employees and about 30 million in annual revenue. And so we had substantial growth over that time. I mean, where we went from like a team of five to 10 to 25 to 50 to like 90. So a lot of growth. So a lot of lessons just around people management, kind of organizational structure, creating culture. You know, a lot of the lessons from that business were really around how do you set up the structure of a business, right? So that it can scale and it can be successful. And that means from like accounting to HR, to marketing, to all the different functions that you need. Cause we made a lot of mistakes along the way. So it's like learning from those mistakes and learning about, okay, that worked when we were, you know, maybe 5 million in revenue, but it broke when we got to 10 million in revenue. So how do you build it from the start to be able to scale up, up and up? And you're always going to have those moments and hit those plateaus, but at least I've been able to take a lot of those lessons learned. So like, so a framework that I put together, because I think a lot of it comes down to the people around you and your team. And I think that's one of the biggest things that companies struggle with is hiring and then retaining really good talent, right? I mean, the the most expensive thing that you'll do is to hire and then fire. And so the framework is kind of four things. It's culture, context, fit, and feedback. And what I mean by that is the culture that you've developed within the company, right? How do you create an environment that people want to work in and that people can grow in? I think it centers around respect and it centers around accountability. Um but just creating that work environment where people are excited to be there, they feel valued, you know they're being held accountable, right? They're growing. I think that's extremely important. The next one would be context. And this is where I saw a lot of companies I was consulting for go wrong. Because they would have people that, you know, where each person's job depended on the other person, but the person at the beginning of the line didn't understand how what they were doing affected the person at the end of the line, right? So the context is taking the time with your employees to really share with them the importance of their job and how their job fits into the bigger picture and the global success of the company. And as much as you can, even tying their compensation to the global success of the company so that everybody's incentives are, are aligned. But but that little thing, I think, goes a really long way of just spending the time to help people understand how they fit in to the larger puzzle and the impact that they can have and how when they don't do the things they're supposed to do, how that affects everybody else down the line. Right. The next one is fit. So I'm, I'm a big believer of like you want to hire slow and fire fast, right? And so fit is critical. I think too many people hire for the hard skills, the technical skills, right? You hire somebody because they're a wizard Excel or because they've got great real estate experience or whatever. All of those skills can be taught. The things that you can't teach are the soft skills. It's the thing, you know, What's their emotional intelligence, right? How do they deal with conflict? What do they naturally gravitate toward and are naturally good at? So I love personality tests and a personality test is part of our hiring. You know, We have that integrated into our hiring and onboarding process so that we can really evaluate that and kind of see behind the resume to like just naturally where are their strengths and where are their weaknesses, right? Because you got to get the right people in the right seats. And a lot of that starts... I mean, some of it can be taught, but a lot of a lot of it, I think, just comes naturally. And then the last one is feedback. I think that mostly managers do a terrible job with feedback. And I think managers do a terrible job with feedback because it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable to give somebody, to deliver a hard message to somebody. And I think we do a, lot, a disservice for a lot of our employees by avoiding that discomfort. But I mean, I think a lot of people think that, oh, we don't want to hurt the employee's feelings. We don't want to have an awkward situation. But really, it comes down to us as managers not wanting to be uncomfortable. It's us that we have to get over. Okay, it's not about the employee. It's about we don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be in that tough situation. We got to get over that because if we don't, our employees are never going to grow. And so you got to give good feedback. You got to take the time to give good, positive feedback. You got to take time to give constructive feedback. And you got to get past the fact that you know, you're know you going to feel awkward about it. Because so I think if you approach it the right way. It's the only way people change, and the only way they're going to grow. What well, you don't want to end up is a situation where you're blindsiding somebody because they think they're doing a good job, and all of a sudden, you know, they're on a performance review or they're getting fired because they're not performing, and they had no idea because nobody told them. So, those are the things uh, when you think about like building a team and keeping a team and scaling up a team that I think are are some of the critical items, and I think that's the key thing when you're building a business. It's not how you do things; it's who you put around you that then can go out and do those things, right? It's like the book, Who, Not How. You should be, shouldn't be should be asking, how do I get this done? You should be asking, who can do this for me? And that that's really how you create
0: leverage. That is a perfect framework. I'm, I'm really impressed with that. I wish that we can just rewind that and go back and just play it over again. <laughs> Entrepreneurs today typically struggle with scaling and actually growing their business. A lot of times when you start off, including myself, like you get busy working in the business and get distracted Mm -hmm. about the long-term goals, but actually sitting down and creating a framework to scale on. I mean, that is a, the most perfect (laughs) framework that I've heard before. I hope it's valuable to you,
1: man. I mean, take it and use it. It's come from a lot of my own lessons and working with a lot of other businesses. I think fundamentally where a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong is, is they think about the business as themselves and they don't think about the business as truly a small business, like especially real estate entrepreneurs like us, where maybe you're, you're a syndicator, right? And it's kind of at first, it's just you or you and a partner and you're kind of doing everything. But for some reason, a lot of us view that differently differently. As any other small business that you would start, right? Maybe it's a small business that's, you know, a marketing company or a consumer product company, whatever. Fundamentally, a lot of things are the same. And we need to think about it in that same way. Because those businesses go out and they're like, oh, yeah, I need accounting and I need marketing and I need sales. I need all these different functions, right? Uh, but I think as syndicators, like we don't put the business in the same bucket as that, right? I, I really do think that. You got to think about it as a small business, not as anything else, not as it's like you and a friend doing real estate investing, right? If you want it to last, it's got to be a small business. It's got to have the same pieces.
0: I 100% agree. In the world of syndication, there is so many moving parts. And when you're doing more and more acquisitions, your time gets spread extremely thin. Mm -hmm. You know, someone has to manage the acquisition someone has to manage the asset management of the projects you've closed in the past and there are really a lot of hats but i think utilizing your framework is the best way i think someone can build their company with the culture as well too right and when i think about your framework yeah. i think about my playing days in the nfl and and how i really wanted to translate some of the things that we did Mm into the world of business, because one of the things that you said was just having those tough conversations. Because if you really want to build a culture around greatness, like you have to have tough decisions. That's right. If you really want to be great, if you really want to have a top notch company, you need to be firing on all cylinders. Yes. And everyone has to understand their role. We always used to say in sports, like we don't need you to be Superman. We just need you to be a man. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that we don't need you to do other things that get out of maybe your scope. Obviously, you know, there are things that you have to do as a part of the team to be successful. But the point is, you really have to understand how your job impacts the next person. Yeah. The next person's ability to do their job. Because if you mess up and you don't do things according to how we planned it or according to the business plan, that ultimately affects The next person, which ultimately affects the entire ecosystem. And for us to really be firing on a championship level, we need to be firing on all cylinders. That's right. And so you sparked a couple things in my mind
1: with what you're saying. And I completely agree with you. And I think that idea of you're taking away from your NFL experience where everyone is elite and everybody's there to be a champion. You're not there if you're just wanting to, like, hang out. Right. Like nobody there is just wanting to hang out. Everybody there wants to be the best. And folks that are just there to hang out, like they get weeded out somewhere else in that process. Right. And I think that's part of the fit. So in the business world, it's not like the NFL where everybody wants to be the best. Not everybody wants to be the CEO. Some people just want to be a manager or not even a manager. Right. Because that's not what they want. And I had a coaching relationship with uh, somebody that was under me, right, at the company. I remember being really hard on them because I wanted them to get to the next level. I wanted them to get promoted. I'm like, these are the things you need to do. And they weren't doing them. Ultimately, the person ended up leaving the company. And I was like, wow, like I'd spent so much time on them. I mean, I was thinking about on weekends. How do we, how do I coach them up? How do I coach them up? How do I get them to the next level? Well, the disconnect was they didn't want to be at the next level right? They just didn't feel confident to say that to me. Cause I was so adamant of like, we're going to get you promoted. We're going to, cause like, that's what I always wanted. That's where like, I think that fit comes in. My other point was if you want to, like you said, you want to have a championship firm or you want to have a top performing firm, you do have to have everybody fire on, on all cylinders. And so you need to set up your hiring process to figure that out. Are you okay with having people that just want to be you know at a certain level and not go any higher? Or do you want to build your process to weed those people out? Because you want everybody to be for everybody to have the same perspective as somebody on that NFL team. Like we all want to be great, we all want to be the best. But that's like a subset of people that want that, you know. So you got to build that, I think, intake to figure out who are those people and who aren't those people. I think personality tests can help a lot in different things. Those were a couple of things that, like, your comments sparked for me. Like, I agree to be a champion caliber company, everybody has to be firing on all cylinders. I think the problem is in the world, not everybody wants to fire on all cylinders. So you got to figure out how do you
0: find the people that do and don't. And that leads me into what you said about the personality test, too, because that is also part of our. Hiring process as well as figuring out those soft skills, mm-hmm. because anyone can have the technical skills, and there's certainly you know levels to expertise on such technical skills. But the soft skills is really what we look for, because we know if someone is a intermediate on, let's say, video editing, versus someone who is like an expert. Yeah. And if the expert is lazy, if the expert is not uh, productive, if the expert doesn't really want to better themselves. Versus the intermediate person who is who has attention to detail, who is responsive, who wants to get better. You know, we want the person who is the intermediate that really wants to get better because right. we know that we're only as good as our weakest link. And when I think about it, I think about it like the New England Patriots. You know, these folks, they never go for the the best guys, right? They go for the guys that have the heart. They go for the guys that want it, the guys that really know how to respond in times of of adversity because that's ultimately who you want on your team. And that's ultimately who you can get the best out of on a daily basis because they have that intrinsic motivation. And like you said, the soft skills to get to the next level. I think there's a much higher correlation between hard work and success than there is
1: intelligence and success. There's a lot of smart people Aren't very successful because they don't have that drive and that motivation. And there's a lot of people who you know may not score the highest on, on the IQ test, but they're extremely successful because they've just outworked everybody else. And so I I, I agree that that work ethic is huge. You know, you want that person that is going to come in and never stop growing versus a person that oh I'm an expert here and I'm done learning, I'm done trying. Right? You want somebody that's hungry. It's going to come in. And so yeah, it does. It goes down to you know but and it's all about you know there's the right people and then there's there's the right seats that's a framework from uh, a bunch of different books but i think um, i think traction is one of them that really talks about that by Gina Wickman and it's like the way you figure out the right people like how do you know if you got the right person well you judge it against your core values right so that goes back to culture in the framework right a big part of your culture is what are your core values what are the things that you strongly believe in uh, and that you want to bring other people, you only want to bring other people in that also strongly believe in those same core values. Because if your core values aren't aligned, it's not the right person for your company. That's not going to be the right person. It doesn't matter what seat they're in. It doesn't matter how brilliant they are, that a bad apple will ruin the batch, right? And that's totally true. And, and like, you know, you got to have the right people. You got you to gotta be clear on your core values so you can hire people that align with those core values. And then you got to get those people into the right seat. And right. And that's what it really comes into. You shouldn't be creating roles for the person you need to create. I think people often try to do this, especially small companies that are scaling. They're like, man, I really like Betty and Betty's really good at this, but like we don't, that role doesn't really fit Betty anymore. So we're going to find something else for Betty to do. You know, they try to create a role around a person that doesn't work. You got to create your org chart without any names on it, right? You're just, I need somebody that can fill this role. And then you got to find the right people to put in that right seat, you can't try to fit a role around a person. I think people go wrong with that, especially because like the people that were with you when you were a five person company, a lot of those people may not be successful when you're a 50 person company. It could be just a different type uh, of person or you maybe you've outgrown their skill sets. And that's just kind of a fact of of how business works as the business evolves. I think those are extremely important. The other kind of going along all this as well, you got to know all this stuff ahead of time. So you got to be thinking way ahead of put your org chart together. Like I have an org chart. I have an org chart that looks five years out. I'm saying in five years, this is what I want our org chart to look like. And I actually have it to like, okay, here's the 2022 org chart. It's a subset of it. 2023, we're adding this. 2024, we're adding this. 2025, we're adding this, right? To get to that whole org chart. But because I have that clarity, I know, okay, in 2023, these are the positions I'm going after and hiring, and this is why, right? And then it allows you to get ahead of those things. And, And I think you'll be impressed when you have that type of clarity for the type of people you're looking for. Like you'll find them, like you'll find them by networking, LinkedIn. You'll hear people saying, like, oh, I know this person, they're a rock star in that, whatever. It's just with that clarity, I think you'll start to find those people. So I think getting that org chart together, getting that budget forecast together, like knowing where you're going is extremely important. You don't wanna be reactive with your growth, you
0: wanna plan your growth and then work into it, right? Those were such golden nuggets. You're kind of making me think about my own org chart and, and thinking about, you know, hey, I need to go back in the lab and revamp what I'm doing because what you're saying is completely right. And it also kind of goes into the cash flow quadrant, too, from Robert Kiyosaki. You know, you yeah. start off as a business owner and you're working in a job or you're self employed, you're doing everything, but the goal is to get to the eye where you're the visionary and you have um, a team of people who can get the job done that can advance the organization's agenda forward. So yeah, this was really, really good. So let's switch into real estate. So you, you know, you exited the company, you have this great amazing framework. You know, tell us more about your investment strategy and how you were able to get your first first deal done in, in the commercial space. So the investment strategy, so we're focused on
1: multifamily B and C class properties, 75 plus units throughout the Midwest. We currently have properties in Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. And we're continuing to, to expand uh, throughout other markets in the Midwest over the next couple of years. And that's part of our growth plan, right? Like we know which markets we want to be in and, and we're starting to look at those. Uh, you know, it's a syndication model where we're bringing in investors, pooling our money together, buying these value add assets where we know that there's a deficiency that we can solve, right? There's something wrong going in that we know we can solve and we can create value and we can get good returns for our investors. So that's really our strategy. Um, The reason we focus on like really workforce multifamily housing is because there is such a supply and demand imbalance in this country. There's such a need for housing. And those are people that really have that need for housing. If you think about what's happened with inflation and interest rates, housing prices going through the roof, interest rates going through the roof. I mean, in Indianapolis, there's like I want to say there is something like an eight or $900, maybe even a thousand dollar now Delta between like the average rent rate and the average monthly mortgage payment. Right. So there's just as housing becomes less accessible, quality safe rentals are what kind of fill that space. And so that's really what, what we've leaned into my first deal. And I think this is a great recommendation for anybody that's trying to get started. My first syndicate. Now I did a lot on my own, right. Uh, For like, Three and a half, four years. My first syndication deal was a partnership with a couple of guys that were more experienced than me. They had done, I think, four syndications at the time. So they'd been through the process, understood, but they were doing a bigger deal. They needed some help. So I was able to come on, help them fill some gaps. And that really got me kind of in the driver's seat right? Got me on the, on the sponsorship side, got me to really understand how that works. I think it's a great way for people to get started is, is find somebody more experienced than you and figure out how you can add value to them and then learn from them. That was like critical to me getting started.
0: That's a perfect way to get your first deal done. That's the same thing that I use to get my first deal done as well. It was just leveraging someone else's expertise and systems. They've already done it before. You just need to find a way to add value. I completely agree with you on the affordability perspective. I think from a long-term perspective, one of the challenges in America will be affordability. Mm -hmm. When we have prices that have skyrocketed in a residential single-family space over the past 12 to 24 months, we have institutional capital that's more um, interested in single-family rentals. Affordability is, is, I think, the new crisis in America. So if you're able to just put Basic, nice product on there that is not too highly amenitized. I think there is a ton of opportunity to create wealth through real estate investing using that particular strategy. I agree with you. And it's an interesting point you bring up as more
1: and more institutions focus on buying single family as rentals. What's that going to do to prices of housing, right? Because when that house is an income stream, you can pay a heck of a lot more for it than somebody that's buying it as a single family home. I know we're, we're moving from where I think it's something two, maybe five, but even as low as 2% of all single family homes were owned by institutions and multifamily is kind of the exact opposite, right? But we're seeing that trend grow exponentially where, I mean, I know in Indianapolis here, there's been a couple of companies that are buying up thousands of homes. I mean, thousands of homes a year um, and turning them into rentals. And it's, it's going to be interesting what that does to the housing market long-term
0: yeah and I was actually just telling someone that the other day. I mean, when we start seeing more and more deals that are transacting on an n o i basis mm-hmm. versus the ordinary um standard you know single family valuation from a comps perspective, yeah, that's going to price a, a lot of people out. and again, it's sad on the the housing side because you know your average American, that is how they are able to build wealth is through their home. but if we have institutional capital, who have lower cost of capital, who have tons of money to deploy and are willing to take a lower yield, I mean, it's likely going to skyrocket. So again, affordability, I think if you're able to provide that option in the marketplace, there's a, a lot of runway to create wealth. Hey, listen up. If you're an employee, business owner, or professional athlete with money in the bank, earning 0% return, and you're thinking about passively investing in real estate, Well, you need to check out our ultimate syndication guide for passive investors. This free guide absolutely covers everything you need to know about passively investing in real estate syndication or just real estate in general. If you want access to this valuable resource, go to MerlinAcquisitions.com/passiveguide to download the free syndication guide for passive investors. That's M-E-R-L-Y-N-N Acquisitions.com/passiveguide, or head over to the show notes and click the link to download. Now let's get back to the show. You got your first deal done. You know how are you able to scale that into nine hundred units today? And what were you able to translate maybe operationally or what were the biggest lessons that you've learned rather operationally that helped you scale to 900 plus units today? Yeah, that's a good
1: question. One of the things is just, is management. Property management is, I think, by the most critical piece to making or breaking the success of your property and your deal, right? They're the ones that are interacting day-to-day with the tenants. I've worked with for property management companies through my time doing this, you know, really struggled with some of those relationships because I found the mindset was completely different from me as the investor, like asset manager, wanting to raise rents, wanting to push revenue, wanting to get to that growth, that NOI growth versus many times the property manager was really more focused on occupancy and actually wanting to limit rent growth, because i personally think frankly because it's harder to rent a unit when you're raising rent you know maybe 6 8% than if you're raising it 2 to 3%, right? It's harder uh, to keep that rented it's it's just frankly more work. I struggled a lot with that uh, at the beginning until i found the right partner and then once i found the right property manager partner that gave me the confidence to know that i could go out and Acquire and be successful. So is that confidence? And so, like when I acquire a property, I'm bringing my property management partner with me, bring their maintenance supervisor with me, because I know that those are some of the biggest gaps I have, especially related to like property maintenance and construction. That's just not my background. I can't look at an, uh, you know, a condenser on an AC unit and be like, yeah, that's from 1994. You know, that one's from 1980, right? but having somebody that can do that is critical. So finding that partner in a great property manager and be, and engaging that property manager on the front end during the acquisition and like making sure they're signing off on here's how we're going about going to go about the rehab scope and schedule. Like here's what I think operating expenses are. Do you agree? Here's where I think rents can be tell me your perspective. You may not agree. You may have other comps you're saying no, we're going to go here and you may have a different vision, but at least they're that great sounding board because that property manager is going to be the one that has the like their fingers in the market every day dealing with people. So, that was a big piece that really gave me that confidence to know that I could go out and acquire and run. I think that just made me more aggressive being able to go after deals because I knew we could be successful based on the program that I'd set up. So that was one big piece. That was one big piece. I think it was just that confidence because I had knew I had a partner who could easily come in and manage versus at times before, I'm like doing the underwriting and thinking, yeah, we're going to put a bid in on this property. And I'm like, well, who's going to manage it? So I think forming that relationship ahead is probably really what's important. I guess the key to scaling is going to be relationships. Is going to be the theme. I mean, the other ones that are critical, right? Are you've got to have the equity. So you have to have the investor relationships and you've got to have the debt. I think people often forget about the lender as the like the biggest part in the capital stack. The way you get great loans is by having great lender relationships. So you got to build those relationships and that will allow you over time to go after bigger deals and to get good terms. So I think those pieces, I think are, are critical to being able to really grow and grow successfully. I mean, the last one relationship lies is really going to be the brokers, right? Because brokers are going to provide those deals you got to be able to build confidence in them that you can close and that you do what you say you're going to do. If you can't do that, you won't grow because you just can't get any properties.
0: Totally agree, man. I think a synopsis of what you've explained was just creating that system. Mm -hmm. And the big part of that is the management because they are the first line of defense on your property. And also they are tasked with executing the business plan. Yeah. And it's the same thing as employee retention to some respect just having the same manager on several properties they already know who you are you know what you like what you want to do they know the culture that you've established within your organization how you want things done that's right and it's just a system that's just implemented from property to property that's right and it takes less stress off of you because you don't have to worry about maintenance you don't have to worry about payment systems and all the little things you can just focus on the two things that drive our business, which is ultimately raising capital and finding deals. Yeah. Now
1: here's, as you scale, where I hit that next plateau was, okay, when we had two, three, four properties, I could stay in touch with everything. We could have weekly calls on those properties. I could call the property manager. You get to like nine, 10 properties, that doesn't scale, right? You can't have nine, 10, 15 weekly calls, you got to be able to figure out that's where asset management really came in is that layer on top. So like, we need to get really good at what are our reporting requirements? What do we need from the property manager? How do we develop our own reporting? How do we own our reporting? How can I get instant access to the numbers I need? How do we set up a rhythm to still have those calls, but have them in a way that's scalable, right? To have those touch points to hold, because you, you always have to be holding your property manager accountable. But what I realized was a lot of a lot of the information, the burden really needed needed to lie on us, not on the property manager. And, and now the way we look at it is I just want like the granular detail from the property manager. We put that into our system and we turn that into reports that makes sense for us and dashboards and things that help us manage. But that was really one of those plateaus we hit where it's just like, okay. I need to get control over everything that's going on. And there's too much just to be able to think I'm going to do one-off calls and keep it figured out, right? Which you can do when you only have a couple properties.
0: That's something that people are eventually going to run into, but it just comes down to having that framework and, and really thinking about that stuff earlier on because you're eventually going to run into it. And if you plan on scaling into the portfolio that you have today, it's only a matter of time. So why not just kind of focus on that earlier on?
1: Yeah, and you're right, it's all about systems. It's all about building repeatable systems.
0: That's perfect. So what are your strategies today with uh raising capital? I'm sure 900 units you've had to raise a ton of capital to get to that level. Give us a little bit context of, you know, how you're able to raise that capital today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think at this point I've raised about 25 about 25 million um for the past few years and So one is my podcast. My podcast has been a great way to just find people that are interested in investing and just teach them about how to be a good investor. And then people, you know, will come to my website and they'll fill out the form to get on our list and and learn about our deals. So that's been a great way to just build one to many relationships. The cool thing about that is like when I'm sleeping, somebody in LA can be listening to the podcast and start to build that relationship with me right figure out who i am and what i'm about and and see if i'm somebody that they jive with right so it's like you talk about like with sales or anything they have to know you like you and trust you right so i found that the podcast and just other forms of content social media other videos is a great way for people to start to at a minimum know me hopefully like me then over time you know start to build trust because they agree with the things I'm saying, we're like-minded, right? We have that in common. So that's been great. You know, I also, I host a a monthly meetup in Indianapolis for real estate investors, right? So it's like networking and creating these communities is is the way that you can effectively raise capital at scale. You can only have so many one-on-one conversations. So like early in my career, pre-COVID, I was going to like 10, 12 conferences a year because I was meeting investors there, right? And that's how I was generating investors. Well, That's a tough thing to do. Um, And you can only have so many, again, one-on-one conversations. So one-on-one conversations are fantastic to deepen the relationship. And I still talk to every single investor one-on-one, but you got to have like the funnel above that to bring people in and bring people to you. That was a benefit of COVID. Like if you look at all the bad things, like a, a positive to me during COVID was it forced me to start a podcast. That was
0: my COVID project. And through that, the podcast has totally changed my business. When I think about that story, really, it's not raising capital. It's attracting capital because we're not raising capital for some new business. I mean, real estate has been out since since the world was invented, right? And we know that real estate provides good cash flow, generational wealth, and tax benefits. And so what we're just doing is just sharing our journey And our expertise and educating and helping people get into real estate and attracting that capital, because we're simply just trying to provide an opportunity and just educate people who are interested in getting into real estate. That's right. I mean, I
1: I view it as my mission is to help as many people get invested in real estate as possible, because I believe that by investing in real estate, they're going to have a better financial future. We've seen it over and over again, millions of times, like you said, throughout history. And if you look at right now, the richest people in the world, the most advanced investing organizations, a lot of their allocations of real estate is somewhere between 20 and 40%. Then you ask the average person, well, what's your allocation of real estate? And the first thing I say is, well, what do you mean by allocation? And then the second thing is, well, zero right? They're, all their money is in mutual funds and things in their 401k for the most part. And so you know, at a minimum, it's about diversification because diversification is the only way that you can truly lower your risk among your investments is by diversifying. It's not that you should be 100% real estate, but you should be some in real estate because it provides a great base for your investment portfolio. And then beyond that, it, it actually can provide great returns if you do it in the right way. I mean, real estate investing has significantly changed my financial situation and my life. And so I want other people to do that. And, and unfortunately, real estate just isn't marketed like the other financial products are, right? The 401ks and things that are pushed by your employer and everybody else. And so so absolutely. And then what you said about capital, like I view it as it's leading through education. I don't have to sell people because if I educate people in the same way that I was educated, That light bulb is going to go on and they're going to say like, yes, that's something I should do, you know? And so it's just about spreading the message so that people can hear the information and can
0: learn about it because there's just not a lot of avenues in your day-to-day life to learn. 100% agree. It brings me to a story when someone was showing me about Rheonomy back in the day, I think a couple of years ago, the first thing that they did was they showed me Jerry Jones's portfolio which is the owner for the Dallas Cowboys. And he had a huge portfolio. And recently I was talking to the CPA for the Minnesota Vikings and they have a huge portfolio. But the point is that a lot of these multimillionaires and billionaires rather, their foundation is real estate. They might have invested in other businesses that they also have been successful in, but it comes down to, are you building a core foundation? And if your foundation is just based off of stocks, then you're likely more susceptible to economic swings.
1: Like you're hurting right now, right? If you're all in stocks, like you're feeling pretty bad about this year. Like the reason that I can sleep well at night is because, you know, I'm only about 20 to 25% in stocks, you know? And so I can take that hit. Like Okay, well, that's all right. And what's cool is if stocks are down, take some winnings from over here and put that into a down market, right? That's how you really win is by being able to you know, buy low, sell high, and being able to move assets and change your allocations and things. And so, yeah, like if you're hundred percent in stocks, like that's just, you never want all your eggs in one basket, right? Like that's, I think everybody can agree to that, I think. And that's ultimately, I think the basis of how you should think about this is that as you're building out your investment portfolio.
0: You've been on an interesting journey from exiting a company, getting into real estate, building your framework. You know if you had to start this marathon all over again, what would you do differently that you think would contribute to your success man I would start buying real estate a heck of a
1: lot earlier <laughs> I would honestly go back to when I was in college well i I didn't have the dough in college, so I'll be i w- I wouldn't buy it in college but as soon as I got that first job, I would be looking to buy that duplex I can live in and I can house hack and if I had the dough in college or if my parents did, I would have bought a rental in my college town and, you know, had my roommates pay my mortgage. Like that's the way that you really trip the system and really get ahead of this because that that's gonna be your largest expense, right? It's gonna be your mortgage or rent typically. And if you can get other people to pay it for you, uh, your financial situations will be totally different. Even if you're like fresh out of school with a new job, right? So yeah, I would have started investing
0: in real estate like 15 years earlier. It just kind of brought me back to a story. When I was in college playing football, I probably would have wholesaled now that I'm thinking about it because I was doing things like Amway. I mean, I, I yeah. did Cut Co back in the day. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> things just, just didn't work out. But I think now that I'm thinking about it, man, I think I would have like wholesaled a little bit. And I think with my hustle and my tenacity, I think I would have made a couple of dollars. Definitely. I mean, I mean, people talk about hustling and all these different things.
1: I mean, wholesaling is a great way. Like if you've got drive and ambition and you don't have a lot of money. Wholesaling is a great way to get started.
0: Totally agree, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then just don't stay in it forever. Move on to owning long term assets, right? And building equity. But it's a great way, like that, and flips are a great way to build up cash to then go invest in buildings that you can own, whether they're short term rentals, long term rentals, whatever, you know?
0: Yeah. Comes down to ownership, man. That's really how you create wealth. So, Tell us a little bit more about or tell us about Hudson Investing and what you have going on. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about the strategy before, but
1: we're buying undervalued properties and outperforming markets throughout the Midwest. And the goal is to scale and scale substantially to the point that in five years, we're buying 500 million in assets a year. And we've built out to that point, a billion dollar portfolio that we can leverage the scale on to improve the outcomes of all of our properties, you know, and, and I mean, it really comes down to creating economies of scale in this business, and so that's why we're, you know, I think aggressive growth is, I mean, I say aggressive growth, but like responsible kind of aggressive growth. Like we're not buying deals that aren't going to perform. It all comes down to the numbers, and for me, I'm a cash flow first investor, so like it's got a cash flow, but growing as we can and not shying away because for example, all the bad news that's going on right now in the world. That's a lot of headlines, fundamentally real estate. And as we talked about multifamily, we talked about the imbalance between supply and demand, right? Those fundamentals haven't changed. They're not changing anytime soon. So my hope is over the next couple of years there's some good buying opportunities as interest rates go up temporarily. And, you know, hopefully we see some prices compress. So, we're out there buying. That's what we're looking to do and grow the portfolio and really be a premier firm that owns real estate throughout the Midwest and allows people to diversify. Even if they're in real estate, a lot of people are heavily diversified in like the Sun Belt or out, you know, out West. We want to be that option for you to get into the Midwest and get some stable cash flowing assets. That's really uh, what we're all about. And we're building a team that is really focused on creating a community of investors, just hired an investor experience manager. Her sole job is to create a community among our investors and really make it feel like a place that you can be proud to be a part of, right? Like I use the analogy of like, okay, car manufacturers, right? You have like GM and Ford over here. You have like Ferrari, Tesla, let's even throw Jeep in there over here. Right. Well, what's the difference? Well, these cars are a commodity and and people you know, buy them, but you don't they don't create avid fans. Ferrari, Tesla, Jeep, like these are avid fans of these brands that go to events and follow them around and and are advocates. And like that's what we want to be for our investors. We want to create
0: that community that everybody can be proud of. I always like to say cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow today to live the life on your own terms and have that financial freedom and then generational wealth tomorrow that you can pass on for people that are coming after you. So you have a website called Hudson investing, Hudson investing.com. Hudson
1: investing.com. Um, folks can go check it out. uh, Learn more about us, who we are, learn about my team, learn about our strategy and sign up. uh If you'd like to get on our investor
0: list and see future deals as they come out. That's perfect. So Kent, if our listeners want to get in touch with you and follow up with you with what you're doing and just stay in the loop with your company, can they reach out to you? Um, What's the best way for them to to stay in contact?
1: Yeah, so going to Hudson Investing and and signing up is the best way. Um, You can also sign up for our newsletter there that we're sending out. Second would be listen to the podcast. It's called Ritter on Real Estate. It's anywhere you listen to podcasts. And then third would be you know, social media. So it's at Ritter on Real Estate on Instagram and, and in most channels, LinkedIn, Kent Ritter.
0: So you can find me wherever you feel most comfortable. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. We talked in depth about how to build a company, your experience from building companies, uh, transitioning into real estate, leveraging that framework into real estate, your scaling plan in real estate. This was a really, really good show. And I'm super excited and glad that we're able to share it with the listeners today. So thank you for being on our show. Thank you for our listeners again today for tuning into another episode of the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. Let's take action and be great today. And remember that real estate is a marathon, not a sprint. Run your own race. Thanks again, Kent. Thanks.